Let's go ahead and start tonight. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter number 4, Acts chapter number 4, and uh, I'm going to be reading verse 23 through verse 31. That's going to be our text and uh, focus tonight. Um, I love the book of Acts. I'm reading through it right now, and uh, I love seeing the the power of God and the gospel uh, there in the early church and how he worked, uh, even against the odds of the culture, against the odds of um, the religious establishment of that day. And uh, just seeing how God works in ways that really are beyond what we can understand in our minds. Uh, And I'll give some backdrop to this as we we get into the message. Uh, But uh, I want to read verse verse 23 down through verse 31. This picks up in a uh, a narrative where Peter and John had been arrested uh, for preaching Christ. And then they were let go and they go back to the church. And we see the church gather together in prayer on behalf of this whole situation. And I've titled the message, Powerful Prayer in the Church, because that's essentially what we see here is uh, the power of prayer uh, in the church as they seek the face of God on behalf of what they're experiencing. And I think there's a lot of things we can glean from this. But notice in verse 23 of Acts 4, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. And said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the the place which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, we hear much about prayer and how important it is to the Christian life, and uh, we should hear it much. It is a key foundation to our Christian living and Christian life, uh, and it is important that we as individuals pray, but I believe it is also important that the church prays together. And uh, I believe we must pray together because we are Uh, his local body. We are one together in Christ. Uh, We are all together in his kingdom, and uh, we're all working together for the same purposes. And I think that uh, the unity of the local church is is essential. It cannot be understated uh, how important that is. And I believe that unity is truly cultivated when his people are in prayer, uh, when they pray together. You remember that Jesus, he prayed before his crucifixion in John 17, 11. He said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so you see the desire of Christ there for unity in his people, unity in his church. And I believe that unity reaches beyond just having the same mind on major decisions. Many people think, well, that's what unity is. Well... It's so much more than that. Uh, unity in the church is about worshiping together. It's about praying together, keeping the ordinances together, 
fulfilling the Great Commission together. It's something that we do together. And here in our text and throughout the early church, I think you find a great example of the early church unified in that way, working together uh, in the world and in the gospel. And at this particular point in the early church, uh, they're in great need concerning the gospel work. They have a great challenge before them, a great opposition. And uh, what we find that they do in this need is that they gather together and they pray. They seek the face of God. They come together on behalf of what they're experiencing. And so coming to this text, why did they come to pray in such a way? We'll see as we come through it. And what happened when they prayed? And what kind of lessons can we learn from it for ourselves? Notice in our notes tonight, we'll give you three points here as we come along through this text. I want you to see the opposition to God's people because this is what prompts them to pray uh, in such a way. It's the opposition to God's people and to his message. And here's what we find is that there was a great resistance to the gospel there in the early church, a great resistance to the gospel. Now, most of us are familiar with the book of Acts and the early church and how this book teaches us about what's happening. It's a powerful book that displays the power of God. And so we learn in the early days, right before Jesus ascended, really, that what did Jesus leave the church with? He gave them a great commission, right? He told them to go and preach the gospel to every creature. He said to go make disciples of all the nations and to baptize them and to teach them all things that he had commanded them. And so Jesus gave this commission to that first church and instructed them to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Spirit was poured on them, which we would see as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what would take place with this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, that local church would be empowered by the Spirit to fulfill what Jesus said they were supposed to do, and that is the Great Commission. He told them in Acts 1 and verse 8, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, here's the reality, is that the great commission Christ gave the church, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit's power. Uh, when you look at the great commission reaching all the nations, you got language barriers, culture barriers, all sorts of things. Without the power of God, it's not a possible, doable commission. But with his power, it is a doable commission. And so that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. That power did come to them on the day of Pentecost. The evidence uh, of that power became unmistakable. And what we find is that as Peter preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost, what was the result of that? Well, the result of that was 3,000 coming to receive the word that he had preached and identifying with Christ and baptism. You imagine uh, seeing 3,000 people receive the gospel and being baptized in that way. Uh, Acts 2.41 is what tells us of that. But this word of the gospel is not being received by everyone, as we know. Just as the religious establishment of that day in Jesus' time, they rejected Christ, so they will also reject uh, the disciples and the apostles with the message of the risen Christ. Now, in the last chapters where we see really what picks up and brings us to this narrative, if you read chapter 3, in the last chapter, Peter and John, they came into the temple at the hour of prayer, And as was many in that day and time, there was a lame beggar there sitting at the entryway. A lot of them would sit there because there's a lot of traffic, and they knew they could maybe uh, get a shekel or two or a coin or two, whatever they could get. And so this beggar calls out to Peter and John and asks for some material help. 
And then you come to verse 6 of Acts 3, and we see what Peter responds to him with. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now this beggar's probably thinking, well, what's, what's this going to do for me? But at that moment, we find that he received strength in his legs, and he began to walk. Now, I would imagine that he would much rather have the use of his legs than silver or gold. That's a priceless, priceless gift. And so this man being healed, I read this this morning, and how, 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 how much joy must have been in him as he goes into the temple, and he's, he's not just walking in there, he's leaping. He's leaping, and he's praising God. He's just excited that uh, he has his legs back. And so you can imagine the attention that's been getting, that the people are drawn to this, they're seeing this. He was a known lame beggar. And so you see there in, uh, in Acts uh, chapter 3 and verse 10 that the people, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So this opens up the door for Peter, prompts Peter to preach and give explanation how that this man is healed because the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, he's risen from the dead. He points out through all these sermons in Acts 2, Acts 3, and on in Acts 4 here that you all crucified him, but God raised him. And so this risen Christ, all these things and the power that you see is because Christ is risen and his spirit has been poured out on them as his church. And so Peter, pointing all of the attention to God and what Christ has done, that brings us to Acts chapter 4. And if you look at verse 1 and 2, you notice how this narrative picks up. Verse 1 says, as they were speaking to the people, this is right on the tail end of Peter preaching after that man was healed, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So these religious leaders, greatly annoyed, or some translate as grieved, they're greatly grieved, they're greatly struck about this, they're very uh, they're, they're in great disapproval of what's happening here. Uh, and so this is the reality of what the gospel really does to the sinful heart. Uh, the sinful heart does not receive the gospel unless God opens that heart, unless God works in that heart. And this is exactly what you're finding. These men who think they've got God all figured out, they've got all re- a religion figured out, we know how pharisaical they were, they were very works-oriented, they see this gospel of grace and the resurrection of Jesus as something that really is a threat to their establishment. And so man's depraved heart essentially doesn't like the truth of the gospel. And many ask, may, may wonder, why is it that way? Well, Jesus answers this question in John 3 and verse 19. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the fundamental thing you see with the heart of men. Uh, The bottom line is that men love darkness and hate the light, and Christ is light. Therefore, that's that's why there's such friction when it comes to the name of Jesus, when it comes to Christ and his gospel. There's a clear hostility in the world towards Christ and his people, and that hostility is against all that Christ represents and all that is true. So resistance to the gospel, it is to be expected by some Uh, expected to some degree, unless God changed the heart. But notice that with this resistance also comes a restriction to the gospel, letter B. There was a growing restriction to the gospel in that early church in that era. Now, it's one thing to have resistance to the word, 
But it's another thing to have a restriction. Now, if someone says, no, I really don't believe the gospel, I really would rather not hear it, that's what you'd call just a, maybe a peaceful rejection, someone who just resists it peacefully. But that is not what we see here in this text. What do we see happen in verse 3 with the scenario for this church? The Bible says that they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So when they're brought before the leaders, what's going on here? They, they, they take them and they just arrest them. All right, they throw them in jail. Well, when they're brought before the leaders the next day, Peter unashamedly tells them throughout this text, I'm just going to summarize for you, that Christ is risen, the same Christ, he says, you crucified. He says this to these leaders, you crucified him, and God raised him from the dead. And it is by this risen Christ that this lame man, that's drawing all this attention, that he's made whole. He proceeds to tell them that, They, in their rejection of Christ, have fulfilled Scripture as the builders who rejected the cornerstone. He goes on to tell them in verse 12 that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12, it's only in Jesus. And so we come through this narrative and you look at verse 14, all this evidence before them, it was unmistakable, undeniable, and they know it. They, They can't do anything to refute it. You look at what it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. You can't refute the evidence. You can't refute the plain evidence of the power of God here. And So since they can't refute the evidence, the only card they can play is their power card, and that is to forbid preaching in the name of Jesus. All right, since we can't really refute this, we're just going to make a law. We're just going to dictate that you're not allowed to preach in the name of Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. You look at verse 18 for a moment. Verse 18, and what does it say? The Bible says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all, at all, in the name of Jesus. Now, can you imagine receiving such a charge? Imagine receiving such a charge. I mean, mean, that would be a, a direct law against my profession and what Jared does. He preaches Jesus. And any one of us Christians who teach about Jesus, you think about that would be directly in opposition to us, and that's exactly what happens here. But what did Jesus tell his disciples? I love how, the, how all the scripture just connects, and what Jesus says to them comes to pass just in a short while. If you look at John chapter 15, and you look at verse 18 through 21, you will see exactly what Jesus said come to pass in our text in Acts 4. Jesus says in John 15 and verse 18, this is Not long before he's going to go and be crucified, he says to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me. They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So, but notice verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who has sent me. So, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen. You think these words might have been ringing in the disciples' minds as they're hearing this from the Sanhedrin that, You're not allowed to preach or teach the name of Jesus. It all centers around the name of Jesus. You see, this restriction and oppression 
isn't so much about the Christian as it is about Christ. It's about rejecting the one that we identify with, not so much us. Because if, uh, if I was openly on the other side and said, oh, I just any religion matters, I'd blend right in, right? They'd have no problem with me. But it's the exclusive nature that we adopt, that we hold as a conviction that only Jesus is Savior, only Jesus is Lord, only Jesus is King. It's that exclusivity that really puts us at odds with the people because then you're only with Christ and not with them. So this is about how the world feels about Jesus. And we see the same scenario today in some parts of the world. There's countries where it is against the law to openly and publicly preach the gospel of Jesus. Owning a Bible could get you imprisoned, maybe even killed. But what do God's people do when they're restricted by the world? Well, I think the response of Peter and John is our example. Notice what, he, what they say in verse 19 and 20. It says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And I can tell you right now that if any of us, you put yourself in their position, they saw Jesus crucified, they also saw him risen with their own eyes. You and I, we couldn't but speak and tell of what we'd seen and heard. And really, understand, it still applies to us today. You know the risen Christ in your heart. We can't be silent about who he is and what he's done. We can't be silent about that which is true in the scriptures. Now, we as Christians, we are tremendously blessed. We don't face uh, restriction or persecution for the gospel. We may deal with someone getting irate with us and yelling and getting mad about truth and about the gospel. But the danger we face in, in our own nation is becoming too comfortable, becoming too complacent to where uh, we become lax in our convictions, where we don't. Uh, we don't uh, follow Christ like we should. We don't evangelize like we should or pray or uh, we may lack in holiness and devotion. Um, that's the temptation on the opposite side when we have freedom. Freedom is truly a blessing and a curse at the same time when you think about it. Uh, so it's important that we understand uh, that freedom is to be used for the gospel, to advance the gospel, and we should not let freedom make us become lax in our convictions to God and his word, because the world, I believe, has penetrated many Christians' hearts, taking their priority off of Christ's kingdom, off of what we are called to be and do in Christ. We need to uh, have a revived zeal like this early church for the risen Christ, for his gospel that should be proclaimed to the nations, starting with our own nation, starting with our own. Paul wrote to the Roman Christians in his day, and he said in Romans 13, 11 through 14, he said, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to, to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know what Paul essentially is saying to them, now it's time for us to wake up. He says to wake out of sleep. He doesn't mean that they were taking a good siesta. Uh, he's talking about spiritual inactiv inactivity, uh, just becoming lax or becoming conformed to the darkness in the world around them. But instead, the key is to put on Jesus and don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill or gratify its desires. So we as a church need to be zealous as that early church for the gospel and also for prayer, as we'll see. And that brings me to number two tonight. 
Notice with me the petition of God's people. The petition of God's people. And this is where we see the prayer of God's people that we read as our text in verse 23 and onward. But I want you to see a couple things about their prayer. And this is what really challenges me. Every time I read this, I'm challenged in my approach to prayer, but also the necessity for the church to be praying as a whole. I want you to see, firstly, that they recognize God's character. They pray recognizing the character of God in this situation. And this is key for all of us, all right? You notice uh, verse 23, when these apostles, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they go back to the church. And when they had heard it, they lifted up their voice together to God. Now, this is bad news coming down the line from the apostles coming to the local church. So how would they respond to this? Will they decide just to keep quiet and do nothing? Say, oh, well, they decided we can't preach Jesus anymore. We better just be quiet about it. Will they decide to um, maybe hide and, and just you know forfeit or quench the gospel because of this? No, their conscience won't allow them to do such a thing. Instead, they turn to their God in prayer, petitioning him for help and guidance in this scenario. Now, look at verse 24. It says, they lifted their voices together to God. Now, this isn't just Peter praying. This isn't just John praying. This is the church praying. Now, understand when we come to a church setting, I, I think it's wise to have one person praying at a time. I have been in scenarios where everybody starts praying out loud at one time, and it can be a little bit confusing. Um, that works for some people best of, you know, blessings to you, Uh, but here's essentially what you're seeing is that the church is praying together. They are praying together, all right? And and this is the proper response for the church to any and all opposition to the gospel. It is to bow in prayer together. This is a massive need for them at this time, and they banded together to pray about it. And I believe that when the church bands together in prayer that there is great power in that, great power in that. That's one reason we spread the news, right? When somebody has an urgent request or somebody has a need or uh, there's, there's something happening in our nation that we need to be praying together about. Uh, that's, that's what happens. We see God work through the praying of his people. But notice, notice with me here, we see a couple of significant aspects that I think that we can apply even as we pray about their prayer. I want us to notice firstly that they pray, they open the prayer recognizing that God is the creator. I love this. They recognize God is the creator here in verse, uh, in verse number 24. They, they lift up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, why is that significant? Why is that significant? Well, because creation displays the vast, infinite power of God. Just looking at creation reminds us that God created all things out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He didn't have stuff that he used to make. There was nothing. And he simply just spoke by the very breath of his mouth everything into existence out of nothing. And so from the vast galaxies of space to the tiniest atom and everything in between, all of it has just come into existence from the very breath of the Almighty God. That, that's a power that's impossible for us to wrap our minds around. We just, we just can't fathom that. We can't fathom that. 
God says in Isaiah 40, verse 25 through verse 26, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he's strong in power, not one is missing. All through Isaiah, you'll see language like that that just displays the power of God in creation. And so we call upon God because as our creator, he alone has the power to fix and help our problems. That's the whole point of coming to him. We're coming to him with a need that we can't fix, that we can't help ourselves with. You know, there are specific professions that we call certain people for, right? We call on a dentist when we have dental problems. We go to a mechanic when we have vehicle problems. We go to a doctor when we have health problems, right? We call on certain people for certain problems. But with God, we call upon God for all problems, not just some, all of them, no matter what it may be. So this early church recognizes that God, he's bigger and more powerful than the Sanhedrin's edict. And so he trumps them. He trumps them. God alone can help them. But secondly, and I think this is key to the whole passage, really, they not only recognize that God is creator, but they also pray recognizing that God is sovereign. They pray recognizing the sovereignty of God, and this is so essential here. Look at verse 24, how they recognize or open their prayer to God. What do they call him? They lift their voices up together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. Now, some translations, it may see Lord our God or O Lord. This title here is actually one Greek word that is an uncommon title for God, but it means absolute master, absolute master. And you'll see some references there where it's used. I put those in your notes. But it represented the disciples' recognition of God's sovereignty, that he is the absolute master over all things. How important is it to recognize this truth of God when we pray? If God is not the sovereign Lord over all, what's the point of praying at all? If he doesn't have control over every situation and every detail, what's the point of praying about it? There isn't. You see, the sovereignty of God is really the the thread from Genesis to Revelation that holds everything together. It's that he is in control and has authority over all things. R.C. Sproul rightly said this way, The very reason we pray is because of God's sovereignty, because we believe that God has it within his power to order things according to his purpose. If God is not the sovereign Lord over all things, then he essentially can do nothing for us. Nothing for us. And so therefore, that's why they use this title in their addressing of God. Their recognition of God's sovereignty and lordship testify to the fact that God alone has the power and control to answer their prayer according to his purposes. Though these evil religious leaders have set their edict, the Lord's purposes triumph over all edicts of men. Proverbs 19.21 tells us, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isn't that something? Man purposes and plans so many things, but God has a purpose, and that's the one that's ultimately going to prevail. Now, sometimes uh, our purposes may align with God's purposes, and so God fulfills that, right? But not always. Not always. And we shouldn't expect it to always be that way. 
The fact that God is sovereign means he has absolute authority and control over all things, including every evil ruler and every bad scenario. He's the sovereign over that. Now, in their prayer, they further continue to manifest God's sovereignty in this way, and as they, and they do this by referencing a messianic psalm of David that is about Christ and God and what he's done. He says in verse 25, they pray in verse 25, and through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were, to, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, we find these are, this is a quote from the Old Testament. I want to read this psalm to you so you'll get the context of it. In Psalm chapter number 2, I love this particular psalm as it shows the sovereignty of the Lord and uh, the reign of, of, of Christ, our Lord, as well. But let's read this, and then I'll point out to you how, they, how the, they quote this and how this ties together. You'll notice in Psalm chapter number 2, and verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And you're going to find as you read that psalm, other portions of it are quoted in Hebrews and other portions of the New Testament. But what do you see here? They quote verse 1 and verse 2 in their prayer to God. And they quote this, saying, Why do the nations rage, or the Gentiles rage? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's what they're quoting in Psalm they're quoting that in Acts chapter 4. And as you come down through this passage in our, in, our, in our specific text, we see how they apply that. In verse 27, in verse 28, he says, they, in their prayer they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What do you find with this? What's amazing is that all these rulers here, they think they have control, they think they have reign, they think they have authority. And even in their rebellious authority and the crucifixion of Christ, they're actually fulfilling the sovereign plan of God that he predestined. And so you see God's hand in the whole realm here of redemption. And with all of their attempts and their uh, attempts to, I guess, thwart God's sovereignty, what he's doing, what does it say in Psalm 2? The Lord sits in the heavens, and what does he do? He laughs. 
He just laughs. And, and, and it is somewhat humorous because you look at all even the world leaders of today, they think they have so much power and might and they've got nuclear power and all of these things. And uh, God just sits in the heavens and laughs. They are under his sovereign control and they can do nothing outside of what he allows them to do. Psalm 2 is, is a great passage of the enthronement and reign of the Messiah. And what you see as you go through that psalm is that the world and its leaders are commanded to bow before the Son of God, to kiss the Son lest he be angry. So the Lord laughs at the feeble attempts of the sovereignty of the nations because he alone is the sovereign. Psalm 99 and verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. And what I find amazing is even in this text throughout chapter 4, we see that the unregenerate leaders assault against the apostles in the gospel could not stop the gospel, could they? They couldn't do it. What happened in verse 4 right after they, they got arrested? In verse 4 of Acts 4, what do we read? The Bible says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Little by little, these religious leaders, they're getting vastly, vastly outnumbered because the gospel is prevailing. They can't stop it. You see, the predestined plan of redemption at the cross of what Jesus did and the conversion of sinners could not be stopped. And so this early church recognizes in their prayer the character of God, that he alone is God. He is the creator and he is the sovereign. And here's the reality for us. That must be the foundation to our prayer life as well. It has to be. Anytime we pray, we need to recognize the character of God because we're approaching someone who is someone who has a character. He's the creator and he's the sovereign, just like they recognized. But notice with me also, letter B, they recognize God's capability or what he can do for them. This is what they're pleading on behalf of. In verse 29 and verse 30, what do we find they pray? He's, they, they pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, that's what they're praying. That's what they're asking. God was not ignorant of the threats that have been made. God knows all about them. Knew about them before they even knew about them. But here's their prayer. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Not to try to be quiet and hide, but to continue in boldness. Isn't that what they need in the midst of a worldly threat such as that? See, God's people don't need to cower in fear because the world doesn't like the message. We need boldness to stay true to the message, no matter what response man gives, no matter what the reaction they may give to us. This was the heart and soul of the Apostle Paul in his ministry. You read Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage or with full boldness, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And we know that Paul, when he wrote that, he's in prison. He's not got a whole lot left until he's going to go on to be with the Lord. But it didn't matter what the world did to him, so long as Christ was exalted. And so beyond just the boldness to speak, they desired power to continue, to magnify Christ in verse 30. And this is the power of doing healing and signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, Jesus promised this power and he gave it to them through the Holy Spirit. And we see that these miracles in the early church, 
They served as a, uh, a, a confirmation of the gospel that Christ is risen. Mark 16, 20 tells us, They went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord working with them, and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So what we saw with the, the, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaching and everybody hearing in their own language, it's a miracle. Healing of the lame man, it's a miracle. All these things were to confirm and, and, and validate and show forth the power of the risen Christ. And so we think about our own selves today. Can God give us boldness in the of fearful things? Because there, are, there is opposition to us on many levels. Can God give us boldness? Can God revive us to have a greater witness? Absolutely He can because there's nothing too hard for Him. Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 32, 27, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? So I think it's important that churches today must come back to see the church in Acts and see the zeal and faith and prayer that we are to have for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. Prayer moves the hand of God to action. But notice we see that God answers this prayer. Number three, we see the response for God's people. The response for God's people. And the well, first thing we find is that they were filled with the Spirit because the Spirit is who emboldens them and empowers them, right? In verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I just pause there and have to think for a moment. Can you imagine being in that prayer meeting? Imagine being among that first church and God supernaturally just shaking the place uh, and, and filling uh, the people with the Holy Spirit. It, this is where they had gathered together to pray, uh, and, and they were shook through this prayer meeting. I, I, I think we see a great, great thing there. As the place shook, God answered their prayer, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you'll see this quite often throughout the book of Acts. Um, we often call it the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Spirit through the Apostles. Because uh, the apostles have no power outside of the Holy Spirit. But this was a renewed awareness of the Spirit's power and presence among them. Now, we're not able to do the apostolic miracles of that day. Uh, I believe those things are, are past that were for that specific time. Uh, but we are still commanded as Christians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know there's a lot of misinterpretation of that. But I think there's a simple, simple application in, Acts, in Ephesians 5 and verse 18, Paul said, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means essentially to be under His influence, to be yielded to Him and uh, guided by Him. Uh, and I think the contrast there is that someone who is drunk with wine, what is influencing them? What are they under the influence of? They're under the influence of the wine, right? Someone who has overdrank and drank too much and become in a drunken state. So there's a contrast there. Don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Be under His influence. Under His influence. And so really, this is a challenge to us as Christians in our day and age. Are we filled with the Spirit? I venture to say that many Christians are not. Many Christians are not under His influence and living in His influence. And I believe the reason for that is that many Christians in this present era, they are too full of the world, too influenced by the world. Too much under its influence in a variety of ways. We need to empty out the world in our flesh and allow the Spirit of God to work in us through His Word and prayer and all things that are godly. But notice with me, lastly, in answer to their prayer, not only were they filled with the Spirit, 
That's empowering them to do what they're praying God would help them to do. But they also are given boldness. They had boldness for God's word. You look at verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And that is connected. It is the Spirit of God that gives us boldness, that emboldens us to go forward with the word of God. So what they prayed for here, they received. God is a God who listens and answers prayer according to his purposes. And it was in his purposes to fulfill this at this time. He didn't leave them comfortless. He didn't leave them powerless in their struggle. He gave them the power that they needed to be the gospel witness that they were called to be. Now, I believe it's also true that we as God's people, we need to revive boldness in our own day and age. Uh, I tell you, the, the opposite side often can appear scary and loud. But I want you to understand that often they are the few. They're the few. Um, what you'll find is that there are a lot of silent Christians that if we all spoke up, the other side would be overwhelmed with how many truly have a conviction for truth and the gospel and who Christ is. See, Paul desired in asking the Ephesians to pray for him in this manner that he would have boldness to proclaim the gospel. Ephesians six nineteen, he said, As for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And here's the reality. We can proclaim the gospel boldly. We don't have to alter it. We don't have to apologize for it. We just have to be faithful to it. Just be faithful to it. And I think you see, when God's people prayed together in this scenario, there was great power in the people of God praying together. And I believe that the churches need to band together and pray in the same way. We still have so many lost about us, right? God's not done saving sinners. He's not done saving souls. We must band together and pray for them. Pray for our churches. Pray for uh, the sick. Pray for those who are hurting. Pray for our communities. Pray for our nation. There is no shortage of what we ought to be praying for. And so the same God of the book of Acts is the God that we still serve today. And so I believe that we ought to approach him as the early church did, recognizing his character, recognizing his capability. And we need, again, to be revived and have that spirit-filled boldness in this present age so that we'll better glorify Christ and see his kingdom advance because we're on the winning side, right? We already are. Christ wins. And so we're going to see that as, as we are obedient and faithful to him. So I pray that.